Welcome into another episode of My Strange Bible here with me, my boy Al. What's up, Al? You doing all right? I am doing just fine, Steve. How are you, sir? Man, in this episode, I'm so pumped because guess what? I'm I'm so excited. We're going to be talking about what so many people have called one of the strangest passages in the entire Bible. And since this podcast is called My Strange Bible, I figure it's the perfect place. I am uh, just as excited for this because I don't really know what the heck we're talking about tonight, Steve. So uh, some background for some people. We uh, Steve and I were talking today about what to do for episodes tonight. And Steve said, hey, really excited about a uh, sermon that I did a week or so ago. So he basically said we're going to do that. And so I'm kind of on for the joy ride here. And uh, be, I will be swept along with everyone listening as well. So, uh, Steve, we are in uh, you captivate our our minds here. Well, this is That's probably, a high charge. This is probably a two and a half hour long sermon that I had to compress the other Sunday night into about 30 minutes. And uh, nice. Uh, at, at our church, um, everyone is very, very patient with me. Uh, I'm just a member of our teaching team. I'm not a pastor there. So everybody is really patient with me, and they kind of know me as the lay pastor of theology and apologetics. And so they know whenever I, I preach or teach that it's time to put the thinking cap on. Uh, but, I'm, you know, it's exciting because uh, I feel like, you know, um, at, at our church, there's a lot of people who really hunger for the word and hunger for content. And um, so passages like this need not scare us, need not confuse us. They're very strange. This is a weird one. I'm telling you right now, we're probably going to make this a, like probably about a three part series. So this is going to take up the next few episodes, but hang with us. There's some really cool nuggets in this story and I'm just excited to dive in. So um, any questions, uh, Alex, before we kind of like uh, let this let this train loose? Uh, no questions. Let's let it loose. <laughs> Let's see where it takes us. <laughs> All right. All right. So here's what I want to do. I, I want to start out with an excerpt. It's a long excerpt, but I'm going to read it. And it's from a book called The Paradise Kink. Now, this is a fantastic book that was written by Blaine Eldridge. If you've ever read any of the work of John Eldridge, he's a pastor, I believe, out in the Midwest. He's written a lot of great books uh, like Wild at Heart and Desire and many others. Um, but um, Blaine Eldridge is a fantastic writer. He's a, a uh, I think he's an English person, um, whatever, you know, a scholar of the English language, if you will, or, uh, or just a languages scholar in general. And so, um, and you can tell just by the way that, uh, that his writing is. So what we want to do is sort of, first of all, set up the context for where we're at in the book of Judges. All right. So this excerpt from the book is sort of like an interlude that is meant to take you from Moses and the work that he did to David and the work that he did. So this is sort of bridging the gap between Moses and David. So here we go. Quote, then came wartime. The people keened their swords. They made weapons of plowshares. The waters of the Jordan piled up and Israel entered Canaan. Joshua led them and the wild lion Caleb was with him. Like a storm, they entered the land. Like a river in spring, they flooded the country. Some towns they burned, others they spared. Swiftly they moved, for time was not on their side. Joshua divided the tribes. He issued his orders. Quickly, they sought out the opponents Yahweh prescribed. Harem, a ban, a thing set apart. That is the term for Joshua's wars. It is not in itself a bloodthirsty word. An Israelite could give God a field. That field would be Harem too. 
Many things could be set aside for Yahweh. In the wars, it meant giving something over completely. Who was under that ban? Anakim, Rephaim, Martu. These were giants. Israel knew giants already. They had slain the witch kings, Sihon and Og, and Og was the last of the Rephaim. His unclean spirit lingered long afterward. But in Canaan, there were Anakim. There were others from Bashan. There were many clans who knew the rituals and the methods of false incarnation the flood had destroyed. Their towns were harem, and they were burned even until the stones cracked. In many places, only ashes remained, or should have. Israel did not succeed. Manasseh did not drive out the occupants of Beth Shean. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Zebulun did not drive out the occupants of Kitron. The list is long. Asher, Naphtali, Dan, these also abandoned the work. And so many giants and many priests and many sibilant servants remained. They stayed in Canaan like venomous spores, hiding unclean partnerships, spreading rebellion, whispering to ghosts, spirits. Their masters also remained, in hiding at first, but in daylight afterward. Oh, it seemed hopeful for a while. At Bethel, they set up the tabernacle. The angel of the Lord, who had led them from Egypt, was often seen. Visions were not rare. Joshua made war with the Shadu chieftains a long time. He crossed the Jordan and took the land and split it up and served the Lord. Even so, before he died, he knew disaster was coming. When he set up an altar, he saw this. He renewed the covenant, and yet he could tell. Choose today, he said, who you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. We will also, the people replied. Yet as they spake, their eyes slipped sideways to their neighbors' wives and their neighbors' fields and the altars far off. These they had desecrated, but the people knew where they were. They had not forgotten the rituals there, the gluttonous feast, the profusions of flesh. You won't do it, Joshua said. His eyes, though pale, saw far. And so this stone I set up will remember your broken promise. He dismissed the people and died and all his generation with him. Then there came a new generation that knew not the Lord. Apostasy is swifter than ravens. Rebellion is a crop that does not fail. The people defected. They sought out Canaanite superstition and learned of the Baals. Asherah also they enshrined. Asherah, old and vile these are, even among rebel angels, and their worship is not songs. It is sacrifice and intercourse and murder. It is bloodletting and summoning and incantation. It is death itself and dust in the mouth. At last Yahweh relented. He gave the people what they chose. The angel himself went up from Gilgal to weeping, and Israel knew what that meant. Yahweh was leaving. The people did not want him. He would go. When he spoke to them, it was like God beholding Adam again. I brought you up from Egypt, he said. Into the land I swore your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and ye shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. And truly, he had been faithful. The Lord had done all that he said. The people had not. What have you done? He asked. I will give you what you want. I will not drive out these people, nor their gods that you have chosen. They will be a snare on your neck, he said. They will choke you and rule you and squeeze out your life's breath, he lamented. Did you not know? Then he withdrew. Blood, 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 blood came afterward. Israel was oppressed by rebellious spirits and by the people that served them, and their sins were heavy. Often they cried out. Often God sent deliverers. These were strange men and women, some faithful, some less so. 
the judges. The most famous of these is a debaucher named for a demon, Shamash, and the most successful fails in the end. There was no king. Violence was everywhere. Israel was vile, dark as the civilizations of Tel el-Hammam, even Sodom and Gomorrah, who knew demonic rituals so well they tried to force themselves on angels. Indeed, there was no king. End quote. So once again, that was a uh, very lengthy answer, excerpt from Blaine Eldridge's fantastic book, The Paradise <clears throat> King. It, that is one of the most powerful passages of any modern book I have ever ever read and that speaks to is the utter depravity of where we are in the story that we're going to be sort of walking through in these next few episodes here on judges nine and the story of abimelech who is the son of gideon alex what are your thoughts on that crazy passage wasn't that just wild I think I'm going to start incorporating it into a bedtime reading for my kids before they go to sleep at night. Listen, um, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's like reading the, the I think I, I want to say I got this directly from the writer Blaine. I think he said this, but I think his point was to basically write like, what if the, if the Bible was told as if it were the Lord of the Rings, basically, like if it was told in that sort of epic fantasy style, that's essentially what the paradise King book yeah. uh, is in it's, general. It's basically, it's basically what it reminded me of. And it, it's a great, um, it has a very uh, literary kind of fictional tone to it, you know, like a like some type of fantastic feeling leading us into what we're going to be reading. So I think it's a uh, very helpful uh, supporting document to to go oh. along with what we're going to be speaking to speaking to. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. So so we're in this place again. The context is the book of Judges. We're in we're smack dab in the middle of this cycle that Israel is going through where there just simply is no king. Everyone is doing what he deems right in his own eyes. Uh, there simply is no structure. There is no, um, the presence of Yahweh, as we're going to see as we go through this, is greatly diminished. Some really interesting stuff uh, about that. And so what I, what I want to kind of set up here is this this contrast between two kings. So the, the title of this series is called The Rise and Fall of the Bramble King. And so if if this passage that I just read was setting up the story for the Paradise King, right, which is that's the Bible's story. The, the Bible is about Jesus, the Paradise King. It's about the rescue plan. It's about God himself. Um, but what we're going to be talking about in this series is this comparison really uh, between Christ and this other king, okay, the Bramble King. And this king is nestled deep in a very, very dark story of Scripture, Judges 9. And this is the story of the king that Israel thought they wanted. And no, it isn't Saul. Again, most people don't realize this, but there was a king in Israel, technically speaking, before Saul. Okay, now I'm going to throw a big word out. This was the first non-monarchical king, okay? So Saul was the first um, uh, monarch that uh, it was actually the established monarchy that uh, God put in place, okay? Now, of course, uh, we know that eventually God uh, really wanted to place David over them, and so David actually became sort of the first, uh, you know, uh, God-approved, if you will, king. Um, but he did at least give them Saul, uh, when they asked for a king. Okay, this time they took matters completely into their own 
hands. And so it's a little bit of a crazy thing. Most people don't realize there was a king in Israel technically before Saul, but he was a very destructive, destructive king and uh, God was nowhere in sight. So scholars agree pretty much that this story that we're going through tonight is the darkest expression of Israelite idolatry. So we've been talking about idolatry uh, recently here on the podcast, right, Alex? Um, yes. In the context of the uh, serving and worshiping the other gods uh, in the context of the divine council worldview. And what's so interesting about this passage is th this is a, a canonized version of the Bible. There's no trace of Yahweh as God's covenant or as Israel's covenant God in this story. And the story is bathed in Baal worship. Okay. So a few things about that to kind of set the scene here. So uh, the, as far as the Canaanite flavor of the passage. So first of all, there's no covenant name at all mentioned in the entire chapter. By the way, this is the longest chapter in the book of Judges. And um, Yahweh is not mentioned at all. Now, God, the God of the Hebrews, is in the story. But he's never named by his covenant name. He's named El. Okay? He's known by the name El. Now, many of you, you might know the, the, the term Elohim, right? So it's another way that we refer sometimes to capital G-O-D, God. Although, as we learned in some of our Divine Council series, uh, Elohim can also just refer to any other uh, being living in the spiritual realm, it doesn't necessarily have to refer to God. Okay. So in this case, the word El is used to refer to Israel's God. But here's two significant things about that. Okay. The first is that El was more of the generic name for God. It was not Yahweh, it was not the covenant name for God. But not only that, guess what the name in the Canaanite divine council of the Canaanite high creator God is? It's El. That's his personal name in the Canaanite divine council. Okay. So this is literally the worst case scenario. It's like, it's like, this is the end of the story for Israel. Had there not been a rescue plan put in place. Okay. Two more things on this. Uh, the second thing is the service of Baal Berit, Baal Berith. You know, it depends on how you want to say it, how uh, how Anglo-Saxon you're feeling today um, as to how you pronounce some of these names. Technically, Baal Berit would, how, would be how you'd say that. This is the God that they worship throughout this passage. And uh, that terminology stands for the Lord of the Covenant. So Baal means Lord, um, and then Berit is the Covenant. So he's the Lord of the Covenant. Some people, like, so again, uh, Baal, there was multiple Baals, right? There was multiple forms and expressions of Baal. And so one Baal was the Baal of the Covenant, the Lord of the Covenant, Baal Berit. And so it's, um, that's the, what is mentioned as being worshipped throughout this passage. And then finally is the name of Gideon. So I've always thought it was weird, right? Um, why, as we read through the Bible, does Gideon sometimes get called like the way that it was always pronounced growing up in, in, in you know, the churches I've been in was Jerubbabel. Okay. It would technically be, <laughs> that's, just, that's the funnest name to say. I just love saying the name, right? So I'm, so I'm going to probably go with Jerubbabel because it's what I'm used to, even though it sounds a little ridiculous. Um, but uh, the way that you would have said that in Hebrew is Yeru Baal. Okay. Yeru Baal. And it basically means let him contend with Baal. 
Okay, so Gideon's father, who was a Baal worshiper, named Gideon um, this or changed his name to that when he when uh, when Gideon destroyed his uh, father's uh, Baal idol. Okay, and so let him contend with Baal is what that name Yerubbaal actually means. And so notice that as we go through the story, that Alex is going to uh, has graciously volunteered to do the scripture reading on this time around. Um, you're going to see the name of Gideon, but it's not Gideon, it's Yerubal. And again, it's another expression of the Canaanite uh, flavor of the passage. So I've, I've thrown a lot at you. We're going to, we're going to got one or two more things by way of sort of introduction before we move in here. Uh, but what are you thinking so far? I'm thinking that we're in for a lot of uh, fun names and we're in for a very dark story. And I like a good dark story, just uh, setting aside what, um, applications that we can get from this and the story into it it's always uh um it's always intrigued me getting into darker side of uh human actions emotions and um the way of thinking just to kind of see that total depravity side of human beings so mm -hmm. yeah. and this is I, i'm not gonna lie this is one story that i've just i've always looked over um before um that's kind of the name of the game it seems for us just looking over things that don't really make sense you never think about um, Israel um, having a king beforehand. And now I know obviously it's not kind of what we think about. It didn't happen in the way that Saul was officially ordained the king by God himself, but it's just, uh, you just never think about this story. No, it's true. And you know, this is a really, really great um, example. And, uh, and I feel like we just need to keep pointing this out, but it's why this podcast, uh, podcast exists. Um, uh, it's an easy story to look over, right? And here's the thing. All of the stuff that we're going to talk about that, like, you know, like I still I, like even just this past uh, Sunday at church, I was still getting comments from people about this message, not because I'm great or anything like that, just but because of how what we're going to see as we go through this is so like radical to us. It's radical to us. It's nerdy. You know, for, for people in my church, it was like, oh, I'm sure glad we have Steve to do the nerdy work of like studying this stuff because I'm never going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I just can't stress to you how not just normal, but how immediate everything that we're talking about that we have to do really hard work to get to, how immediate these um, this knowledge and, and these insights would have been to the original audience of the text. That's how far separated we are in mm -hmm. time tradition and translation everything we're talking about here would have been immediately obvious and this is a really good point to talk about something just a general principle that uh, if you're a listener to this podcast five years from now you're still going to hear this principle come up so this is a really good place to introduce it it's the literal versus the literary side okay so uh, a couple things about this a great example is what i opened with reading that passage from Blaine Eldridge talking about the the story from Moses to David, and I didn't finish it. I purposely withheld that at the end of the series. I'm going to go in and finish that excerpt to kind of show you something. But the point is, is that it's a literary retelling of the true events that really happened as it was written in the Bible. Okay, um, but it was told in such a way as to create a certain effect. What you need to understand is that the Bible itself is written that way. And this is why um, Dr. Michael Heiser used to say that it would be prudent to read the Bible in the same way that you're reading a fiction book. His point was not that the Bible is a fiction book or that what's in it is false. 
his point was that the readers are being intent or the writers, excuse me, are being intentional and trying to do something to you. And so if you read it, um, as though it's a fiction past uh, a fiction book, um, the writer is trying to do something to me as the reader. I need to look out for this or I need to notice this or I need to like take extra special uh, care when I'm reading this section. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's what we want to do here. And so um, everything in this passage reflects what literally happened. Okay. But the way the story is told literarily is for the purpose of capturing how dark Israel was. Okay. So in other words, God is still mentioned, but he's mentioned by his name, uh, by, by the generic name L. And he's mentioned polemically as kind of a shot against the Canaanites by assuming the name of the Canaanite high God in his council. Okay. Uh, again, Gideon, why not call him by the name Gideon? Well, because that is not the, the writer's forcefulness. The writer's point is that we're not worried about what Gideon would be called in Hebrew. We're not worried about his Hebrew name because this is a Canaanite passage. So we're going to call him Yerubaal. We're going to call him by his Canaanite name. So it is a great example of what literally happened, but the way that the story is told is intentional to make you think a certain way about it. Yeah. All interesting things, Steve. All right. So here we go. I don't want to bury the lead anymore. So this is just for the practical application, because again, the point of this podcast is to talk about the nerdy stuff, but you know, there are some pastoral and practical points here to take away with you as well. So if you're listening and uh, if you want to take notes, you can write this stuff down now so you don't forget it or you can come back to it later. But here's three things. I'll give you the message in three quick bullet points, okay? Number one is that idolatry is the root of all sin, okay? Idolatry is the root of all sin. I thought this was interesting. That's a good one. Uh, yeah. Um, um, why, why do we say that though? Like, okay, idolatry... What is idolatry? Um, idolatry is ultimately the substitution, um, uh, you know, of anything for God, right? Ultimately, yes. Uh, for the ancients, it was literally a worship of another god, right? And in this, we see these gods mentioned in this passage, okay, as one example. Um, but it's also interesting to me that uh, Satan is not worshipped in the Bible. Now, there are like Satanist cults today, but think about it. I'm not sure of one example where Satan is actually being worshipped in the Bible. Isn't that, that's another one of those things that's kind of strange, like when you think about it for three seconds. Wait a minute. I thought Satan was the big baddie in the entire Bible. Why were they worshipping other gods? Right? Why weren't they worshipping Satan? Isn't that strange? Yeah. You ever thought about that? I, I have thought about that, and I think one thing that I've just kind of thought of recently, I haven't fleshed it out fully, and I'm sure that, I mean, there's answers for it, but it, I kind of, and I almost uh, kind of enjoy that in a way where I, I think a lot of people tend to, not purposely, but kind of elevate um, Satan as this, you know, all-powerful being, like the the actual Satan we're talking about. Yeah. Um, it, and then, but really, when you kind of read through the Bible, he's just kind of like an afterthought. He's a description on how the story carries through, mm -hmm. you know, through the salvation plan. And like, he's just, he's just, a, um, he's just an aspect. He's just a part of the story. He's not mm -hmm. the story. Um, and so when yeah. you're thinking about it in that light, it makes more sense why you don't see more of him or he's like frequently, you know, at every single chapter, he's not the antagonist of the story. Now, honestly, the antagonist of the story is, 
is us as humans and yeah. you know it's being separated from christ so anyway that's kind of my long and, answer and yet question. we're the ones being redeemed which is just part of what yeah gospel yeah. so beautiful but but here's why i can say this then like okay satan isn't worshiped in the bible idolatry is the root of all sin well this is why um satan is actually not very focused like yes satan is very prideful of course but satan is not focused on you drawing your attention to him Satan wins if you get your attention on anything that isn't God. And this is why I think idolatry is uh, still something that we should and can talk about today because idolatry, whether it's self-idolatry or idolatry over our job, over money in general, idolatry over, um, <clears throat> frankly, our kids or our government, like there's lots of things that are good things uh, that still can ultimately get in the way of what God wants to do. And all Satan has to do is get you focused on something that you think is good that isn't God and substitute that thing for God and his job is complete. So I think it's interesting that Satan doesn't actually have to get you to worship him uh, in order for him to accomplish uh, his goals, okay? Yeah, and 100%. So a, a another manif manifestation of this leads to our second sort of practical point, right? So first point is idolatry is the root of all sin, okay? Second practical point, is that selfish ambition leads to destruction. So as we go through this story, keep in mind something. What we're basically witnessing here in this story throughout its conclusion is the tragic and logical example of a life lived for the self. Okay? This story is what happens if we get or if we got what we deserved instead of Christ. This is the story as if there was no rescue plan. It's kind of like mm. a microcosmic version. That's a good angle. Yeah. 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 It and it's what the story does. It's a it's sort of a microcosmic version of the anti-gospel, right? This is somebody who sets himself up as king, thinks he's doing good, almost gets away with it, and then God destroys him at the very end in the most embarrassing way possible, which is just wild. Okay. So if there was no rescue plan, this is it. And this is where the story of Israel would have ended. I'd like to do, I'm just, this is a mental note, but I think it'll be fun to, as a teaser, one of the podcasts, Alex, uh, an idea that I have that I wrote down, I think that I'd like to do in the future is a, uh, an episode on bottleneck, bottlenecks in the Bible. So uh, if you're not familiar with the, the concept, um, not sure where it originates, if it's in science or sociology, but a, a bottleneck is basically an event where, um, you know, like a population or something like that goes down to a singular, like, you know, a very small point, just imagine like a bottleneck in a bottle, right? Um, and where you had more when you started, and then at the very end, only a few come out, right? Um, so there are these bottlenecks in scripture where um, literally, like, had God not intervened, the story would have ended there. The flood is an example, right? The flood was a literal population bottleneck that without God's providence and sovereignty, the story wouldn't have continued. The supernatural creation of Israel as a people was a bottleneck. And this story, I believe it's a little bit of a less obvious one, but I believe this story is a bottleneck. If there was no mm -hmm. rescue plan in place, this story shows exactly what would have happened if Israel had fully integrated into Canaanite theology and cultural practice and never had come out the other side. Isn't that crazy? This is the, the story would have ended here. That's really so. It makes about. makes you wonder when you think about um, kind of like modern day. If if everyone just gave up, uh, like what what the story would look like if the Bible was written today. You know, what would it look like if if Americans just dumped God a hundred percent? What we would 
what would what would we trade for that and what would it look like you know correct really really abysmal right and yeah. who's to say i mean who's to say it couldn't happen you know uh, again where there's going to be some other kind of bottleneck where maybe like most churches end up descending into like progressive ideology or something and then like there's only going to be a you know a few left and there is, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the biggest on like end times stuff. Like I'm just not the most knowledgeable about it. I'm just being honest, but like, you know, there is that idea they say of like a great falling away at the end. Right. And you got to think, is that sort of another one of these bottleneck events? And then like the final bottleneck is just like, you know, the, the final, uh, I don't know, a non cheesy way to say this, but like the final people who are actually saved, you know, that, that are, you know, gonna, uh, gonna end up, you know, with Christ. So, so who knows what, what is to come? Um, all I know is that when you live for the self, selfish ambition like uh, Abimelech is actually going to uh, put on display here for us is what leads to destruction. And um, it, it will be so obvious uh, as to not be able to miss it in this passage. Um, mm. Okay. And then uh, the third point is hardly anything groundbreaking. Um, in a sense, it's the most groundbreaking thing, but also it's, it's an obvious point. Uh, the only rescue is the work of Christ. If there had not been a plan uh, for Israel, um, through the pathway of Jesus Christ, then uh, ultimately the story uh, would have ended and uh, there would be no rescue plan for us. And so we have Christ to lean on and to rely on. And uh, without him, this is where we'd be in the story. So we can just read this story and feel really bad for Abimelech and for the, the, the people and the different characters in this story. And at the same time, we can praise God that we are not in their shoes. And that, um, right. you know, he has, uh, he has provided his work on the cross to rescue us. So those are the sort of practical application things to keep in mind as, uh, as we move forward. Awesome. Steve. I like that. Uh, I like that introduction. All right. Covers a lot of, covers a lot of ground for some heavy stuff. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Can you read Galatians six, seven, and eight? Galatians six, seven, eight, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. So when I preached this at church, I subtitled the message, um, um, God will not be mocked. And I looked up, this is another one of those verses, you know, we know it. We grew up, like we memorized it in like Awana and Kids Club and stuff like that growing up. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Okay. Um, so I, I wanted to look up because this is another one of those Bible verses we're just so familiar with. I wanted to look up the word mocked and see what it was. So in Greek, it's the word mikterizo. And it um, is indicative of the action of turning up one's nose, right? So it's like that idea of like when you turn up your nose to something. And I was like, okay. I mean, I kind of know what that means, but like honestly, not really. <laughs> so let's see what, what Webster's has to say about it. So I looked up the idea of turning up your nose in Webster's, and I thought this was just crazy. It hit me like a ton of bricks. To refuse to take or accept something because it is not good enough, right? To refuse to take or accept something because it is not good enough. And so when you think about it that way, this is, again, the ultimate story of sowing and reaping. And it's this idea that, uh, honestly, um, we're treating God as though he is not good enough. Israel treated God despite his rescue, despite his covenant, despite his promise, despite his love that he showed over and over and over again, despite his patience, despite his grace, he was constantly turned down. Israel said, you are not good enough. I want to worship the Baals. I want to worship the Asherahs. 
right? I want to do uh, this religion thing. I want to do spirituality on my own terms. And God said, no, I will not be mocked. It's not going to work. You have to do this my way. You don't get to say whether or not I'm good enough. I am good enough. The only reason you even exist as a people group is because I have allowed you to. And so, again, that just, uh, I think, brings a, um interesting color to this message about the idea of sowing and reaping, God not being mocked. This is what happens to the man, to the person who tries to mock God, which is why the Bible is clear and consistent on this point that the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God, because if God is real, if Jesus is the Savior, then the most foolish thing you could ever do is reject him. And the story that we're going to read here shows the end of the rejection, or, or shows what happens in, in that rejection. So, 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 it's time to finally read the Bible, all right? We are now to the point uh, in the story where we need to pick up where uh, at the end of Gideon's story before we move into Judges chapter 9. So I'm going to bring up the Bible here. And if you just want to start, Alex, if you want to do um, um, Judges 8, 30 to 35, it would be a great starting point. Uh, uh, before I do that, I want to say something about the uh, the mock, eight, uh, the mock de definition. Yeah. I never... Um, I never looked at it before like that too and it's an interesting definition but it kind of makes sense we kind of i know steve and i kind of talked before about making a mockery of sin and how foolish it is and you know there's something some sort of uh like um uh like justice feeling with it i guess but it makes sense when you look at it in light of that definition to refuse to take or accept something because it is not good enough and it makes perfect sense why you would mock a sinful lifestyle or just sin itself, because it's it's something that is not good enough. It's something mm -hmm. that we shouldn't accept. And it's just, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just the play on words, but it kind of gives it a new kind of definition. Yeah. Like a well, new meaning. Yeah, and I, I like it too. Like, I've always thought that was funny, right? Because the, the way that in the modern day that we tend to use the word moth, we think of it as like laughing, like, or like making fun of or something like that. And I was like, wow hang on, be not deceived, like, we won't make fun of God, so whatsoever a man sows, that shall we also reap, mm. and it was like, I don't understand, <laughs> like, yeah, that doesn't seem to make sense, but when you look at the Greek word, it actually means turning up one's nose, and if, if turning up one's nose means to refuse to accept something because it's not good enough, then it's like, yeah, don't be deceived, like, God is good enough. You're not going to get to stand there and say that God is not good enough for you. Whatever it is that you sow in place of accepting God, then that's what you're going to reap, right? Instead of reaping the blessings of God, essentially. So it makes sense when you actually look at the words. Um, in order to know what the word means, you have to know what the words mean, right? Yeah, 100%. All right, Steve. So uh, so Judges chapter 8 and 30 through 35. Yeah, please. And remember, uh, Gideon is Yerubal, so that's yeah. who we are talking about here. So Gideon had 70 sons, 70 sons, that's a lot of sons, it's his own offspring, yes, since he had many wives. Well, that explains it. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Alpha of the Abyssalites. When Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves by worshiping the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their god, who had rescued them from the hand of the enemies around them. 
they did not show kindness to the house of Yerubal, that is Gideon, for all the good he had done for Israel. Okay, right. So this is the end of Gideon's story. Gideon's story is a um, man, just an interesting one, multi-layered, goes through a few chapters, really starts out on a high note, right? I mean, Gideon is doing a great work for the Lord. Um, he's a little, you know, doesn't have very much confidence and he's like, all right, God, well, let's make sure that you're telling the truth here. So I'm going to ask it to rain, but you don't need to get any on the fleece. And God does that. And he's like, no, it's not really good enough. So how about you make it rain only on the fleece, <laughs> right? And, and nowhere else. <laughs> right. And I was like, all right, fine, whatever, right? So, um, so much bad theology on decision making is a result of that passage. Oh, just put out a fleece. Well, oh my goodness, yes. that's not how it works. But that's a different discussion. Okay. Um. So, but it's not how you start. It's how you finish, right? And in the case of uh, Gideon, uh, unfortunately, he did not finish well. So, in um, Gideon, uh, excuse me, in uh, Judges chapter seven and chapter eight, you have this sort of scenario that's kind of a, a weird story. I, the details are kind of hard for me to retell. Um, it has to do with like bread and some other weird stuff. Um, but basically, uh, again, Gideon um, is, um, you know, he, he delivered Israel through the hand of God um, from the Midianites, and Israel held him in high esteem for that. And they're like, hey, Gideon. Uh, we'd like to make you our king. And Gideon's like, well, here's the thing, guys. Hanks, but I don't really, <laughs> I don't really want to be your king. I'll tell you what, though. If you want to bring me, like, your gold and your jewelry and all this, you know, I wouldn't mind that. And so I'll just make this golden ephod and, you know. So what's the point? The point is, is Gideon wanted to live like a king, right? He wanted the people to applaud him for his efforts. He wanted him to bring their gold and their silver and their jewelry and all of that stuff. But he didn't want the responsibilities of being a king. And you can go back and read that and kind of see all that happen in verse uh, 22 and following uh, of chapter 8. Go, go read that on your own sometime. Uh, but he didn't want to be a king. He just wanted to live like one. I thought the 70 sons thing... Um, is uh interesting for a couple reasons number one boy i thought i had it bad um with uh <laughs> i thought um, you did too steve <laughs> yeah. uh, three sons and one wife um gideon had 70 sons and um many wives it doesn't even tell us how many it just said he had many wives <laughs> the too many they count when it says many wives there's too many to list that's exactly right. It's like it's like if you go to a website and they don't have a price available, it says call for quote. You know, it's too expensive, yes. right? So they just uh, they couldn't even give us a number of how many wives he had. And he had 70 sons. Um, and then, of course, he also had a concubine with which he had another son. Now, um, this uh, uh, there's an interesting connection here. So the um, the number 70 comes up quite a bit in the Bible, um, like many times and so this is one of those ancient numbers that was probably what we call a royalized number one reason why it's really significant in this passage though is because baal also had 70 sons or 70 offspring okay and so you have this interesting association going on where gideon the would-be king had the same number of sons as baal in right Canaanite mythology that they are 
you know, within, you know, in the midst of these people and, and getting ready to, you know, to, to essentially start worshiping one of the Baals. And so the likelihood that Gideon and Baal literally each had 70 sons is probably not very likely. So this is an example of uh, what we think is uh, basically a royalized number, okay, um, and significant here because of the Canaanite connections. And again, uh, going back to the inerrancy thing, I guess there are some who would want to take this path, but in my view, this does not mean that the Bible is in error. What if Gideon had 73 sons? It's very possible that Gideon had 73 sons, and the Bible was essentially um summarizing and royalizing this number 70 for the literary purpose of making it match with the um, offspring of Baal. Okay. So it's, it's again, uh, this, it'd be so easy for a skeptic to point at the Bible and see how, what's the likelihood that they both had 70. See, the Bible is wrong. It's making it up and it's, you know, it's, it's a lie. Uh, that's not how ancient writing worked. Again, there's the literal piece of it that happened. Um, and then there is the, uh, royalizing that happened now. So to me, um, or I, I should have contrasted the, the, the literal thing that happened and then the literary style of, of how it's told. Uh, now I don't think this would mean that like Gideon actually had like five sons, right? Mm. But it's using the term 70 to match because we, that's not consistent with the rest of the story. Cause again, the story kind of goes on to tell about how all these other sons have been slaughtered. Uh, so it's not, it's not as though that we can just say it's anything. This is where, in my opinion, the the person who is um, uh, trying to press too hard for the inerrancy case um, is going to struggle, right? Because it's like it's like okay, it, it's not, or maybe I, I should say, press too hard to say that the Bible is errant because it's not like okay, if he didn't have seventy, therefore he had five, and it's like way off. Like in my opinion, I'm I'm pretty sure it would be accurate to say that the numbers were close, right? So you maybe he had sixty five sons or seventy three sons or something like that, and it's rounded to seventy for that purpose. Does that make sense? Well, sense? well, I think one of the like what you said, whether it's seventy, seventy five, you know, even like fifty eight, sixty two, whatever it is. It, I mean, it says in verse thirty, Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, since he had many wives, and so it just. It, no matter what, yeah. like it, if it wouldn't have been for the wives, then maybe someone can make an argument for that. But it's saying like, hey, this guy had a lot of kids. He had a lot of wives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly right. It, it, and this is why, Steve, you and I need to come up with our own definition of inerrancy. Exactly. I'm, I'm still convinced. For the whole world to adopt. Yeah, that's unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put it lightly. Yeah. Um. Okay, so here's something else. So again, at the... um. At the very next uh, a part of, well, actually, so in verse 31, we see that his, his concubine, who was in Shechem, and I'll just pull up the uh, the Bible here again. Verse 31, you see there, it says his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and named him Abimelech. Okay, so Abimelech is uh, two pretty common words in Hebrew uh, put together, and they are fascinating words. So Abimelech, first you have Abba, right, which is father, and then you have Melech, Melech, which is king. So, so, so Gideon, who did not want to be a king, but wanted to live like a king, <laughs> yeah. literally named his son, my father is king. Isn't that <laughs> wild? Yep. Yep. yep, yep, yep. My father is king. And so, 
again, you, you see, it's like that verse that says, like, be sure your sin will find you out, right? I'm not exactly mm -hmm. sure what that means. It's kind of a weirdly phrased thing. I'd want to maybe look at it in a couple other versions too. But, like, it seems like this idea, which I think is correct, like I've heard Sean McDowell talk about it like a beach ball. It's like, you know, you're, whether you're hiding your sin or whether, like, whatever it is, um, you know, you're hiding, like, your knowledge of God, uh, even if you deny that God exists or whatever. But, like, every time you say, I love you to your son, like, you're acknowledging that's, that you have this feeling called love that is not just a random, you know, mixing of chemicals, you know, bouncing around, but it's actually an emo, you know, an emotional feeling by two rational beings that wouldn't be able to experience love if not for God. It's like when you're push it's like you got a beach ball and you're playing in the ocean and you keep pushing the beach ball down, but then the beach ball keeps splashing up, right? Because you can't actually suppress the beach ball down. And so that's what I kind of see going on here, right? Is like, yeah, he says he doesn't want to be a king, but he literally names his son, my father is king. So like, there's the expression of it right there. Like, it always comes out your true motives, your true intent, and yeah. um, you know what it what, what that actually breeds. Yeah, it's a weird. <laughs> it's uh, I picture that Gideon was a. It just sounds like an annoying guy to be around. <laughs> someone who you, right? you know, just a, I I just picture someone like that who names his son that like, just being a normal conversation with them saying like, hey, like I know you say you didn't want to be king, but why are you? having all these people bring you like these earrings and stuff yeah and that he yeah. just outright like maybe he would just deny it or something and say oh i don't care you know i just suggested it. i like earrings but like I, isn't yeah. that kind of a stretch no i just like earrings like, okay okay gideon yeah. right right <laughs> he's a little whiny too right like with the whole, yeah with the whole fleece thing and then like you know he's having a conversation with his dad and like he destroys his dad's like bail statue and he's just he's kind of like i don't know he's kind of insecure kind of flies off the handle kind of like you know, a little needy and a little whiny. It's Some, interesting. Somewhere, somewhere out there, uh, if you listen closely, you can hear Gideon complaining that the uh, the streets of gold are not quite as golden as what he hoped they would be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's hilarious! And if he's like uh, so many enlightened expositors of the Bible, he's determined that there actually weren't streets of gold at all. It was just a symbol. Yes. So anyway. Yes. Mm. Interesting. Yes, he, um, so he is arguing that that point now. Indeed, indeed. So uh, we are about to move on, but uh, the last thing I want to say, kind of about this first section, which, by the way, I didn't even tell you the name of sort of this uh, this uh, section or first point that I'd kind of outlined here, but I called this the scourge of idolatry. And I am a Baptist, so these are all uh, <laughs> underrated. So uh, I did that for y'all's benefit. But yeah, this is sort of the scourge of idolatry, right? So we we sort of see here, and we're not even into chapter nine yet. We're we're getting ready to go there. But you sort of see here that like the problems uh, that idolatry has is what has caused this epic sort of descent into chaos, right? And so the, the, the descent into chaos sort of begins with Gideon, and it's going to move further here into uh, the story of Abimelech. And you can see, uh, again, Gideon's pride on display. You can see the connections with Baal and the Canaanites. And let me tell you, uh, the story gets a lot worse from here. So um, I just wanted to point out that the idolatry that we see in this passage, right? This is not like mere harlotry where it's like, you know, um, you know, Israel, like, you know, like some people decide to like go off and start uh, worshiping in the high places and they might do us an offering or, you know, here or there and burn the incense to Baal or something like that. This is a uh, displacement. And we see this in the language that's used. This whole passage reflects an entire displacement of Yahweh as their covenant God, which is like, 
again, when you understand, uh, if you're just reading the words and skimming over it in your Bible study and you read the words, you know, Baal Barit or Baal Barith, like whatever, I'm sure that was, that was just another Baal figure, whatever. When you find out that it means Lord of the Covenant, that has mm. such a deeper meaning because you're actually saying, oh my goodness, like th these people replaced God, As an replaced actual Yahweh. Yeah, yeah, with Baal. That, that's exactly the mindset of chapter 9. So with that said, unless you have some comments there, which you are welcome to make, did you want to head into uh, chapter 9? Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Um, I, I do want to say that uh, it's well worth reading the end of chapter 8, just to g give it that the context as we get into the story, or else I don't think there would be um, there'd be a lot of confusion going into it. And the chapters really, the chapter separations could do a lot. <laughs> I think they do more harm than good because someone just picking it up might end at chapter eight, say like in their normal devotions or something, and then pick up chapter nine the next day and totally forget about what they read the day before and then just kind of space out on the the timeline of things. But anywho, Absolutely. okay, uh, versus uh, what verses, Steve? Oh, uh, one through six. All right, one through six. Abimelech, son of Yerubal, went to Shechem and spoke to his uncles and to his mother's whole clan, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the citizens of Shechem. Is it better for you that 70 men, all the sons of Yerubal, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and blood. His mother's relatives spoke all these words about him in the hearing of all the citizens of Shechem, and they were favorable to Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth. Abimelech used it to hire worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. He went to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his 70 brothers, the sons of Yerubal, on top of a large stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Yerubal, survived because he hid. Then all the citizens of Shechem and of Beth Milo gathered together and proceeded to make Abimelech king at the Oak of the Pillar in Shechem. Okay. So Abimelech goes to his uh, father's <laughs> or his, his, his mother's family and says, all right, look, here's the deal. Like, there's a lot of us. Okay. <laughs> and listen, um, you know, dad didn't want to be king, but 70 sons, like, there's going to be some fights for the throne. So here's the deal, people of Shechem. Do you want me, who is your kin, your family, to be ruling over you? Or would you prefer the other 70 ish sons of Gideon? to be ruling over you because I am your flesh and blood. You want one man to rule over you or all the other men of Yerubal to rule over you? And they're like, well, after all, he is our brother. I mean, he's kind of got a point, <laughs> you know? So what does he do? He goes out and he hires this ragtag dude brigade. Okay. Um, the King James says they are light and vain. Okay. And the CSB that we just read, it's worthless and reckless, right? Um, these guys are literally the bottom of the barrel. I just imagine Abimelech mm. going to a bar, right? Yeah. In Shechem and saying, all right, you guys will do, you know, they're all half drunk and everything. And they're like, sure, we need a job. So check this out. 
I did the math on this and looked this up. The amount of money that these guys got. Now, remember, what they were being contracted for, they ended up you know, serving Abimelech in his quote-unquote kingdom. But the first mission, their first job, was to go slay the sons of uh, Yerubbabel, okay? And so they were going to go to kill his 70 brothers in Ophrah, and he needed this ragtag uh, dude brigade to go help him. So I did the math on this. The amount of money that he got from the temple of Baal Berit to actually be able to do this and hire these people was about $617. Okay. So, um, and even an adult male slave was worth like 50 shekels. He paid them like basically one shekel, like barely one shekel each. And um, like they had to go each kill. So they each got like, you know, uh, about a shekel to go kill um, one of their, uh, one of um, Abimelech's brothers. So $617. These guys were like super cheap, bottom of the barrel, um, even paid less than an adult male slave, which is kind of um, interesting mm. and, and sort of ridiculous. So, uh, so right. So what happens is he, 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 he hires these worthless and reckless men, which I think is just um, really funny. Um, he hires them with, illegitimate resources, right? Like he, he gets the money from the temple of the God that they're now serving, right? Their new covenant God. He goes to that place to get the money from his temple to go and to kill the other sons of Gideon. And so I think there's an interesting lesson there. You know, the ends don't always justify the means as sort of sort of thing like you know it's it, just because you want to go do a good thing doesn't mean that you borrow money from um mm. you know and it's not a good thing by the way like it's not a good thing he did but the point is is that you shouldn't do it anyway right it's just a bad idea um one uh connection here that's sort of interesting if you look at verse six it says um um da -da -da -da, then all the citizens of shechem and beth milo gathered together and proceeded to make abimelech king at the oak <laughs> of the pillar in shechem okay Oh, 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 just uh, really, really tragic. Okay, super tragic irony here. So this pillar is the same place where that they crowned him king was the same place where Joshua in Joshua chapter 24 made a covenant with the people that they would never go off and worship other gods and instead would, would worship um, Yahweh. So uh, again, I'll just read this, Joshua 24. Uh, this is in the KJV 25 and 26. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So it's the same place where Joshua made a covenant with the people and wrote it in the, in the book of the law of God that they were going to worship and serve Yahweh. They would not go a whoring after other gods. They would certainly not trade their covenant God for another covenant God. And what's happening here? Abimelech, the false king, is using the money from the temple of the covenant God to go kill the sons of Gideon. And I look at this and I just think, what depravity mm. have we descended into in this story? I mean, this is just really, really bad. Yeah, I think that... Um... 
he must have been bullied quite a bit by his brothers growing up. <laughs> I, it's a, no, it's a good consideration. You got to think about that, right? Like, what would lead him to do this, right? Yeah, it's it. It is kind of unfortunate. The storyteller in me wants to know, like, the whole backstory to, you know, what what brought him to this point. I mean, obviously, obviously, there's some pretty messed up family situations there. Then you have the oh, yeah. uh, then you have the Israelites turning away from. Uh, from God anyway. And so there's just there's so many problems anyway. So he's obviously being brought up in an environment that's just chaotic. Um, but then to, you know, just to the shift to he obviously has devised this plan on, you know, wanting to become king. That's his desire. And then it, it almost again, it doesn't give us a specific detail, but it's just kind of like it's a blink of an eye. Like, OK, now that I kind of have this support and I have this money, I'm just going to go kill my brothers now. <laughs> um, it, it really kind of reminds me of just like, you know, you hear about, you know, someone who like goes on like a, like a mass killing spree or something Just someone who, and you just think like that person just must not have a conscience of like the value of life or just any type of, um, conceptualization of that. And that's, he, that's was kind of what Abimelech reminds me of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think ultimately, uh, he had a selfish ambition like we talked about um this this whole section is what i call the sin of selfish ambition and it's this um again it's this idea that like when you have an idea in your mind of what you want to do like he wanted to, to serve and, and be the king over these people and as we're going to see a little teaser for next time we're going to see this epic pronouncement made against him by the son of gideon um jotham or yotam who got away and he's, he's going to be like, look, like he's going to tell this epic parable that I'm not going to get into now. That's going to be like, yeah, like Abimelech, you know, he might have thought he had a good idea, but uh, it turns out he's nothing but a bramble bush, nothing but a thorn bush. And all a thorn bush is good for mm. is fire and burning and, and destruction. So uh, a, a reminder here on the practical side of things is that, you know, you don't have to fall into those patterns. You know, God has given me a new agency um, that we don't have to be like uh you know like our father was or like our grandfather was or whatever like we can actually break uh these patterns if we want to and so he didn't have to to be the same way as gideon he didn't have to live up to that name of my father is king right i mean he could have mm. he could have just taken the double meaning right my father is king yahweh right yahweh is my king yahweh is my father right he could have leaned into that instead leaned into sort of that earthly kingly selfish ambition wanted to, to take all the glory for himself and then ended up in this position where um, um, the people were crowning him king, uh, but it was under false pretense, and it was not uh, it was not the Lord's will. So I, I have this uh, quote here that I want to read, and then we can sort of uh, wrap up, and you know, you can give me kind of any final comments. But uh, this is from Dan uh, Dan Block. He's a really well known and um, a really prolific Bible scholar. He he said this quote: "Those who are called to leadership in the kingdom of God." face constant temptation to exchange the divine agenda for personal ambition. Ironically, the more impressive one's achievements for God, the greater the temptation. Having won mm. deliverance for his people with a spectacular victory over the Midianites, Gideon began to act like it had all been achieved with the sword of Gideon rather than the sword of the Lord. Before long, thy kingdom come was replaced with my kingdom come. He listened to Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. The servant of the people had become their despot. Unfortunately, the old adage, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, often holds true even in the church, end quote. And uh, so I thought that was really appropriate. Um, of course, he was talking about Gideon, but like clear to see that Abimelech is going to follow in his path. And really like, um, like 
if you just count, you know, compare uh, the timid, fearful, unsure Gideon of chapter six, the beginning of chapter six in Judges, to the um, uh, corrupt and um, just uh, destructive uh, Abimelech, Gideon's son, like it's crazy to think in one generation how bad things can mm -hmm. get and of course we're going to see his end is, is absolutely terrible but the story of Gideon could have turned out completely different but uh selfish ambition got in the way and pride tends to do that so I like that quote um I forget the specific wording but it is it, it kind of says you know a great power comes great responsibility almost but with great power comes great temptation <laughs> it's kind of a way mm. that flips on it you know and I, I think uh, you and I have talked about this um before Steve, I don't know why it just popped in my head, but I think about um, like preachers today, not even necessarily what I would say, like famous ones, but just any kind of preacher who has a wide audience, whether it's a large church or goes and speaks around a lot. And you and I always kind of have a pet peeve of um, seeing people ask preachers to like sign their Bible. <laughs> and I don't mm -hmm. know why, but I just kind of thought like, does that, do you think that would help or hinder the person signing the Bible? You know, like it just yeah. someone's already in that position where maybe they're a great speaker, eloquent, and just they're naturally liked. And maybe they don't necessarily struggle with, you know, like pridefulness or uh, or anything like that. But I would just think that um, anyway, that's just kind of that's just one very specific, you know, aspect, example of it. But um, yeah. I, I could just see how um being in that type of position even if your heart is right and you want to do the right thing it could be very easy to get comfortable and cozy with a um with a position like that um where people like you um you feel like you're doing good work and then you just you get sucked into temptation quite quickly that is literally like the most fantastic point like i, I remember growing up thinking yeah, I mean, it was normal at the time, but like as I sort of, you know, started yeah. to grow out of it a little bit, I was like, you know, it's kind of weird that like I have these pastors <laughs> like, with all their signatures in my Bible. And like, I remember it used to, I used to like idolize them. And I was like, well, that seems wrong. Like that wasn't good. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. it's like, uh, I should care that the word of God's preached, not like how good of a storyteller this guy is, or like his hair is really nice, or like he can memorize lots of scripture, like um or he's really eloquent like those are not the things like those are the kind of things that can lead to corruption and and, and sure you know a lot of those guys are, are are fine and dandy and nice guys and you know i'm sure uh i'm sure for some of them it was just fine they could they could sign people's bibles with yeah. no issue and not have a problem for others i guarantee you it went through their heads right mm -hmm. uh, the man of god is somebody special he's up on a pedestal and i you know he's gonna sign the back of my bible and you know uh i i think that's not um, you know, that's not how the Lord sort of intends for it to be. Um, so I think, yeah, for real in the church, um, we see lots of temptation and struggle and, um, corruption uh, of power when one person becomes, um, you know, starts to think of themselves higher than they ought to. And, uh, if mm -hmm. only there was a passage in a book that said that we should not think of ourselves higher than we ought to, because the minute that we mm -hmm. do that, we're going to fall and be humbled really, really quick. Well, not only th not only that, not only a book that says it, but a book that's filled with examples of it. Happening. Examples, lots of yeah. examples, many. And this, again, as we go through the story, is going to get much worse. So uh, I think we cut it off here. Next time, what yeah. we're going to get into is Jotham's solemn uh, pronouncement over 
um, Abimelech and the people of Shechem. And it's a really interesting um, piece of literature that I think you're you're going to be like, holy cow, this is this is really amazing. Um, but it's sad, um, but also cool. And I'm, I'm glad God put it in the Bible for us to uh, to learn and discover. So any final comments, Alex? No, I just want to thank you for bringing this topic up and uh, bringing it to light. It's a, I, I'm loving it so far. It's a very good story. It's cool, and it only gets uh, worse and better from here. So Worse and better. <laughs> yes. All right, Steve. All right. Well, hey, look, if you find this podcast useful and helpful, please, if you're on YouTube, comment, uh, like it. If you're uh, on a podcast, hey, leave us a review. We could really use some right. podcast reviews so that when people come across the podcast, they see other people that have liked it, you know, liking it and engaging with it. So um, if you're a listener on audio, like take just a minute to go to wherever you're listening and see if there's a review, a place you can leave a review. Go to iTunes and you can do that. And we'd be really grateful for it. And um, beyond that, we'll see you next time on My Strange Bible. See you next time.